This is Politics and Media 101. I'm Jeff Browning. Max Bergman is the director of the Europe program at CSIS, the Center for Strategic and International Studies. From 2011 to 2017, he served in the U.S. State Department in a number of different capacities, with a specific focus on political military affairs, arms control, and international security. It's been more than 100 days since Russia invaded Ukraine. The UN estimates that more than 8 million people have been displaced within Ukraine, almost 7 million were driven out of the country at the height of the fighting, and President Zelensky said last week that at least tens of thousands of civilians have lost their lives. In the years since World War II, the United States and Europe have built strong bonds based on shared interests and ideas. Russia's invasion of Ukraine is the largest land war in Europe since World War II. And the stark reality of the conflict has impacted the thinking as well as the conversations among leaders on both sides of the Atlantic about what the future can, could, and should look like. We spoke with Max all about this. If you'd like to hear more past episodes, please visit our website, pm101.live. Please also take a second to subscribe on whichever streaming service you're using right now so you don't miss our next episode coming out this Friday. Our co-founders, Justin Higgins and John Gunnison, led this interview. Without any further ado, let's roll the tape. Max, recently there has been a debate, and maybe it's been going on for a long time now, but with Ross Dotart in the New York Times, with Emmanuel Macron, you have these camps of thinkers and in some cases world leaders preaching that Ukraine needs to let Vladimir Putin save face, offer an off-ramp to this madness that he has unleashed, give away some territory. And on the other side, you have folks like the prime minister of Estonia and other thinkers, many other thinkers, the, the generals you see on Twitter like Mark Hurtling, saying, no, Russia needs to be soundly defeated and Ukraine giving up any territory is completely up to them. Where do you fall along the spectrums of these two views? So I, I hope that the latter view is is correct. The Ukrainians are able to have total military success on the battlefield and able to destroy Russian forces that are on their territory and to take back all their territory or as, as much as possible. However, I do think that diplomacy never stops. I think there's this illusion that that when the, the fighting starts, that the talking stops. It's like, no, the, the what diplomats do, what back channels are for, what car- is to have a constant diplomatic form of engagement. And I think what Emmanuel Macron is doing, I think is actually pretty important. I think some of his public rhetoric about what Ukraine should and should not be doing, I think is probably largely for domestic consumption. There are French parliamentary elections. The French do have politics. And I think some of that is he's shooting himself in, in, in the foot in terms of his relationship with Eastern Europeans and trying to put any sort of pressure on the Ukrainians to accept some sort of deal and talking about embarrassing Putin. However, I do think part of what his role is here is to serve as the back channel to Putin, which I think is quite coordinated with the White House. I think it's quite coordinated with other European leaders. And while you may say, well, why do we want to have a back channel to Putin? Well, because he's got nuclear weapons targeted at my house, literally on Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C., you think he's crazy or paranoid, that's exactly the person that you actually want to have uh, some back-channel form of communication uh, with. Now, I don't think Putin is crazy. I do think he's really paranoid. And I think part of the the back-channel here, or it's not even a back-channel, but the line of communication that Macron has with Putin is probably not that useful right now. 
but could be useful down the road. And so while we hope for Ukraine to have total success on the battlefield, we also need to be somewhat prepared that if Ukrainians need to tap out and say we need to have diplomatic talks now, much less what was happening in March when they began a, uh, a negotiations with the Russians, the Russians began negotiations with them. You know, I think we need to be prepared to support that. I guess the last thing I'd say that this is basically creating off ramps for for Russia. I don't think that's what is needed. Ukraine is driving is is driving down the highway. You try to create ramps, off ramps that Ukraine gets to decide whether they want to take or not, and it's up to them. And I think that that needs to be clear that this is up to Ukrainians to decide. But the West can help facilitate diplomacy, perhaps at a certain time. You talked about Ukraine having total success on the battlefield, about Ukraine retaking all of its territory. And we know that there's fighting happening in the Donbass, Luhansk, Donetsk, Oblast, but also the internationally recognized borders of Ukraine include the Crimean Peninsula. Uh, is there really any path to Ukraine retaking the Crimean Peninsula? I think the answer is it would, ha- it would have to result in a total collapse of the Russian military in the current fight that they're that they're currently waging. And that's not impossible. I think you could see a situation in which the Russian forces exhaust themselves in their current offensive in the Donbass, that the weaponry that we're providing Ukraine, that they, they're training on it, they're learning on it, and that Ukraine is, is able to muster forces to engage in a massive counteroffensive, which then the Russians just completely collapse. Now, we've seen that a lot of times in battle where you look at forces that are roughly equal, and then suddenly one gains the initiative and the other one just simply collapses. I think, I think that happened uh, you know, in, when Napoleon invaded uh, Russia back. Um, you know, it was documented by Tolstoy and War and Peace, where the Russian force effectively collapsed despite having equal numbers. Now, I think even if that were to occur, then moving against Crimea, where the Russian Baltic fleet is located, I think the Russians would defend Crimea almost at all costs. And I think when you talk about Putin's potential use of a tactical nuclear weapon, and that what that means is basically just a tiny nuclear weapon that could you know, just obliterate whatever it lands on, I think that's when you start getting into the potential fear that Russia would be backed into a corner, Ukraine's then trying to take back Crimea, and then Russia says, no, you're not. Now, I don't think that this war is going to get there, but if it did, my guess is by the time the Ukrainian forces are about to be at Crimea, there might be some changes in the Kremlin too. I think it'd be so destabilizing, such a collapse like that, that it would have ramifications in Moscow as well. Now, we can talk about that scenario, but I also think that it's getting a little ahead of ourselves and and where we are in the war as well. It's pretty interesting hearing these conversations and the ones that Justin alluded to about off-ramps, about saving face, about a negotiated settlement, because we see the headlines. And we hear people talk about this in vague, broad, theoretical terms. But it's much rarer that we hear people actually outline what the shape of some kind of settlement could really look like. And it can get a little bit frustrating listening to some people, especially in the sort of restrainer camp of American foreign policy, talk about settlement as if the idea of one is all you need. (laughs) It's it's so vague. And, you know, I always want to respond and say, well, what does it look like? You know, what do you think you can offer Putin that will really satisfy him? Max, do you have any idea to answer that question? Well, no, I think it's a really tough question. And I think partly because what we need to have happen, unfortunately, before you could have any negotiated diplomatic settlement is military exhaustion, right? You know, once you start engaging in a fight, the shirts are off, the the punches are being thrown, they are all in and they're only going to stop until one side either wins or both sides have basically exhausted themselves utterly and completely. 
And then even when both sides exhaust themselves, you then sort of oftentimes have the beginning of a process that kind of goes to nowhere and you have low-grade fighting. I think when people sort of look at what's a potential diplomatic outcome, they struggle because they mostly sort of see us returning to where Ukraine was between 2014 and and February 22nd of this year, where Ukraine was fighting a low-grade war with the Russians. There was a line of contact. There was a front line. There wasn't peace. But things had basically stabilized. It's one of these things that we call a frozen conflict in the former Soviet Union, where you, it's a conflict, but not, not much is actually happening. But I think if you were to get past that, if you start to think, what would a diplomatic settlement look like? I think there would be some territorial recognition on the part of Ukraine over over Russian territory that they currently possess. I think there would probably have to be some Russian recognition of Ukraine's right to join either the EU or NATO. And then my guess is there would be some some Cold War style negotiations over what weapons Ukraine could possess. And you could say, well, Ukraine should possess any weapons it wants. Well, you know, nuclear weapons, advanced cruise missiles that could hit Moscow in, in like five minutes. So you could start to see how we start getting into kind of a what was basically standard Cold War style arms control negotiations over limits on certain things, or the inspections of certain bases, you know, U.S. forces couldn't move into Ukraine, couldn't, you couldn't do exercises, all these sort of restrictions and that we have a lot of experience actually doing with the Russians, you know, that could be on the table. But I think what happens in these is there has to be military exhaustion, the beginning of talks, and then the talks take a long time because you have to build up a degree of trust. And then it, it may be really hard to see trust between Zelensky and Putin. So maybe Putin I can't be the leader. I don't know. It, it, so it could be years before we actually, it could be a frozen conflict. And then perhaps there's some transition Putin moves on. Maybe it's 10 years from now, but then there can be an actual negotiation. So this is, this is, could be a really long drawn out process. I just want to say before Justin asks the next question, that's remarkable that when we say maybe it can't be Putin and Zelensky, we're now saying, well, maybe Putin will be the one to change. If you asked us a year ago, of course, we would have thought that Zelensky's time in power is more precarious, but it really says a lot about the momentum of this conflict that now we're doubting Putin's position more than Zelensky's. Yeah, particularly when, you know, the Russians were sending sort of Jason Bourne-like assassins to try to kill Zelensky in the beginning of the conflict. And there was, you know, multiple attempts on his life and the whole effort was to decapitate the regime. So I think, you know, I think the one thing that we oftentimes forget here is the massive victory that Ukrainians have won. The fight for you for Ukraine's existence has been won, you know, for Ukrainian democracy has been won, that Ukraine will survive. It's now a question of of what are the borders, what's the territory, how much territory can Ukraine take back? But winning that first that first step of just survival is just a tremendous achievement on the part of the Ukrainians. And we've had great experts on from all different wings of the ideological spectrum. I don't think anyone predicted in the beginning of this that Ukraine would win that first step if Russia did a full-scale invasion like they're doing right now, so resoundingly. At the White House today, it looked like smooth sailing that Sweden and Finland will become the newest members of NATO to deter Russia from invading them like it did Ukraine. They meet every NATO requirement, and then some. But there's a catch. Turkey, which like all NATO members must sign off, is saying no. President Erdogan calling both Sweden and Finland guest houses for terrorists. 
He's talking about the Kurds, specifically the Kurdish Workers' Party, or PKK, and associated Kurdish groups in Syria. U.S. officials, in private, suspect Turkey wants concessions, but will ultimately go along. We will commit to Turkey's security just as Turkey will commit to our security. But NATO's squabbles only help Russia, which is tightening its grip on southern Ukraine after its victory in Mariupol. Just to transition a little bit away from Ukraine-centric, obviously this is related to Ukraine, Max. Putin's invasion has pushed Finland and Sweden now into really considering and wanting to join NATO from a U.S. perspective. So from our perspective here in the States, do you support or should we support adding Finland and Sweden into NATO because it will have strategic benefits? Or is this something that we should slow down, let's pump the brakes and, and maybe reconsider? Oh, I think this is a huge strategic benefit to the United States. First of all, Finland is a major military uh, provider. It'll be a major beneficiary, uh, benefit NATO overall. You know, th- that's a really capable military that has, you know, F-35s, advanced munitions on its fighter jets for standoff fighting. It's a really capable military. And Sweden is also quite, also has a quite capable military. They really embraced the peace dividend after the Cold War. Uh, but after 2014, have have rebuilt their military and have a really advanced uh, defense industry and are you know have bought Patriot missiles. I think this is a huge benefit to the United States. I think the main thing that it does, to be honest, is that it it ends the strategic ambiguity that existed in the Baltic. Now we talk about strategic ambiguity about whether we would come to Taiwan's defense. Well, something similar kind of existed with Finland and Sweden, both are members of the EU. We talk about them being neutral. They're not actually neutral. I think that's a misnomer. I got chewed out by the Swedish foreign minister once by describing Sweden as, as neutral because they're a member of the European Union. They're a member of political union. When the EU does sanctions against another country, it is Sweden and Finland. That is not neutrality. And so if Finland was invaded, the EU would have to be there. There is a 40, article 42.7 of the Lisbon Treaty, what is basically a mutual defense clause. Now, it doesn't have the same meat to the bone uh, as Article 5 in NATO, but there would be NATO members coming to the defense of Sweden, and then the question, or Sweden or Finland. And the question is, what would the United States do in a situation like that? Well, I think we would be there. And so this just guarantees it. It eliminates that ambiguity. Now, from a, a really kind of tactical perspective in the, in the Baltic, it's tremendous. This is a huge defeat for Russia because if you now think about the Baltic, well, it's now a NATO lake where Sweden and Finland to the north really use their forces to engage with NATO, to have real control over the maritime space, to shut it off for Russian access, putting real pressure on this enclave of Kaliningrad, which the Russians possess, and really helping to support the Baltic states. So from a military standpoint, real forward projection for for NATO, for U.S. forces coming into NATO or coming into the European continent. So I I think this is a huge strategic benefit. It's basically very little downside for us, I I, I think. It's funny you mentioned that being an EU member means that you're not a neutral country no matter what. I think that not every EU member is fully reckoned with that. I'm thinking especially of Ireland and Austria. But Max, because we're on the topic of NATO expansion, I need to ask you about Turkey because they've been the ones to raise concerns about adding Sweden and Finland. It doesn't seem like it's really about Russia and Ukraine. Maybe their concerns, especially with Sweden, have to do with some of the Kurdish issues, the PKK and the YPG. Are you confident that 
there could be some concessions that would satisfy Turkey and that Turkey will eventually give their consent to these two countries joining the alliance? Confident is never a word I would use with President Erdogan. So I, I, I think I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful and would expect that this gets done. And I think the best course right now for the other 29 NATO members is to ratify Sweden and Finland as fast as possible. Turkey may have some legitimate points here and there, but here's the the basic problem when it comes to a lot of Turkey's uh, objections when it comes to the Kurds, is there will they will probably make a lot of accusations that Sweden's harboring terrorists or doing other things. And Sweden will say, okay, we don't want to harbor terrorists. We're a country of laws. Show us that they're terrorists and we'll extradite them or we'll take criminal action because we're anti-terrorism too. And Turkey won't be able to. They will assert that you can just do certain things because you're a country and, you know, as Erdogan is able to do in Turkey, and that's not how democracies work. So we could be at a bit of an impasse. And the question then is, is Erdogan really going to hold this up? Is he really going to poison the well, not just with Sweden and Finland, but basically the entire NATO alliance and also with the European Union, even more so? Turkey's about to have a, a really terrible economic situation. They're, they're in a terrible economic situation. It's probably only going to get worse. They also, Erdogan has an election next year. I think this is about extracting whatever concessions he can get. And I think some of this has to do with the United States as well, potential arms sales of F-16s, trying to get some certain things over the line. So, you know, I think, look, everyone is handling this, I think, correctly right now with quiet diplomacy. Leaders are going to Ankara. People are playing nice. No one is spouting off. How dare you, Turkey? You know, everyone's trying to sort of play nice, but everyone should just ratify, ratify, ratify and get to the end. And if it's Turkey that's holding out, then we need to have a, a real hard conversation about Turkey's membership in NATO. Just like you're saying, Max, it's funny that they would be causing problems in their relationships at a time when it seemed like their foreign relationships were trending in a more positive direction than ever before with the West because of their support for Ukraine, but also with the Arab world where they're really starting to rebuild the ties that have been phrased since 2011, where the UAE are announcing these investment deals, where uh, Erdogan might even go and meet with the Saudis, who haven't met with him in 10 years. He's decided to create a new problem. So maybe it's a, <laughs> a bit of a leadership habit. I think, I think Turkey, in some ways, at least the way I see it, is, is, is Erdogan's really unpredictable, or predictably unpredictable. And so I just, I don't, I, I don't know exactly how this will play out. And I, I think it is concerning that and this is why strongman you know autocracies where there's a single point of failure are necessarily the best form of government where it's difficult to know oftentimes where how that country is going to make a decision and so hopefully i think turkey will end up in the right place but but we'll see yeah and and you had mentioned there some things that the us could do and other diplomatic concessions that maybe erdogan is trying to get and then you threw in maybe it would be time to kick turkey out of nato if we were to get to that bridge, is that a bridge that could be seriously crossed? And more so, what type of ramifications would that have? Because Turkey and the U.S., while precarious friends, are important. Yeah, I, I think I was probably getting a little head out in front of my skis and saying kicking Turkey out of NATO. I think we would have a long way to go there. And there isn't like a clear process on how you would actually do go about doing that. That was going to be my next question. I don't even know. Yeah, I think one of the problems when you know the EU created itself and NATO created itself, it didn't create a clear path. Or actually, that's not true. The EU did create a clear path to exit. We've seen the UK use that, but it's a little bit less clear in the in the NATO sense. Or to involuntarily kick the kick a country out, I should say, is is not not so clear cut. 
I think we have a long way to go there. I think we could see just other form of statecraft used against Turkey, whether it's sanctions or other sort of diplomatic snubs. I think Turkey would feel it pretty acutely. Turn the screws, you're saying. Yeah. 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 There's two organizations, pan-European organizations that are so salient to the activity in Ukraine today, NATO and the EU. Both of them, there's talk of expansion. And I, I've always held, Justin, uh, we've been talking about this in our program plenty, that the EU one was the much more salient one for Ukraine, that Russia, Ukraine, the EU, everybody always knew that Ukraine was never going to join NATO. And this is a rhetorical device to keep floating this as a pretext for aggression, that the real issue has always been the EU. That's how Euromaidan happened, because Ukraine wanted to join the EU and you can't be in the single market and also be in the Eurasian Economic Union. That's how we got where we are. Right now, Ukraine are pursuing EU candidacy. They care about it much more like than NATO, as they always have. However, Mario Draghi, the Prime Minister of Italy, just said yesterday, I think, that Italy is the only major EU country that supports Ukraine's candidacy. There isn't support for Ukraine's candidacy elsewhere among the big players in Europe. Do you think that that's correct? Do you think that there's not support for Ukraine's candidacy? And... Will Ukraine have to be satisfied or have to settle for other arrangements, kind of like the Western Balkans, that they'll have to forget about formal membership and find some other way to integrate with the EU? I think you know, the way you started your question, I couldn't agree more. You know, I think when we think about what, what does Zelensky really want, uh, it's EU membership. Uh, there's a great scene in Servant of the People, which is you know his show before when he was president of Ukraine, before he actually became president of Ukraine, where he gets a call from a fake pretend German chancellor, Angela Merkel, to inform him that they've become members of, uh, allowed to join the European Union. And he's he's celebrating, he's jumping up and down, says, this means so much to the people of Ukraine. And then she says, oh, wait, oh, Ukraine? Oh, sorry, I meant to call Montenegro. And, you know, it's a great scene because it shows, I think, how passionate, not just Zelensky, but Ukrainians are about joining the European Union. And this is something that I think Europeans take for granted that in the EU, uh, they don't really appreciate oftentimes what the EU means. Uh, and those outside, I think, do. That being part of the EU is not just being part of a multilateral organization that does like economic deals. It is being part of a political union. You get citizenship. Ukrainians would become dual citizens, a citizen of Ukraine, a citizen of the European Union. And when a country like Greece is basically, you know, when it had its depression, was facing a choice between getting rid of the euro and effectively possibly being kicked out of the EU, and it would have avoided a lot of the economic depression, perhaps, that it, it had to suffer through, it said, no, we'll suffer through. And I think that demonstrates the commitment that or the meaning of European membership. Now, when we to, to get to your specific question, so... I think this is a really tough question. And if it is the case that only Italy of the major Western European countries supports candidate status, well, I think that's a shame because I think Ukraine should definitely be granted candidate status. I think we should move them along. Now, I think there's a lot of issues uh, that Ukraine will have to cross, mainly like what's its border, just as Ukraine joining NATO would be impossible as long as it's still at war with Russia and has a contested border. It's going to be similarly very difficult for the EU to let Ukraine in if it doesn't have a set border vis-a-vis Russia. Now, that said, I also think we need to look at the Eastern Europeans here who are speaking out of both sides of their mouth when they say that they want Ukraine to be a member of the EU. But then when Mario Draghi and Macron say, well, we need to reform the EU because 
it doesn't work well when you have 27 member states all have to approve something, and then you have Viktor Orban of Hungary blocking something, or the Poles with their far-right government blocking you know, an OECD tax deal that Janet Yellen is pushing, uh, and that every other member of the EU supports. So that, that unanimity is a problem. It's also a problem the, that you can be in the EU and undermine democracy and not face punishments or penalties. That's a problem. I also think having two presidents sort of makes no sense and everyone's confused by it. So I think that's a problem. So I think every past enlargement has led to some internal reforms of the EU, a new treaty, and that's going to have to happen here. So the Eastern Europeans, when they write a letter saying, we are against any reform to the EU, well, they're also screwing Ukraine. And so you can't have one without the other. So there's got to be internal changes. And that's going to cause, require Eastern Europeans to really bite the bullet on something where Estonia with 1.3 million people now has a veto over the direction of a a political union of 450 million people. They're going to have to give up some of that, not all of it, but some of that leverage, some of that influence, and it's going to have to be more pooled. So I think I think what we're going to see here with Ukrainian EU membership is a process in which there's going to be deal making within the EU. It's going to look very messy. Americans are going to be very confused about what's going on. But it's really critical, I think, that this move forward, I think it's critical for Washington for to begin to understand this and to put pressure on all sides and say, you need to work this out in Brussels to make this reform and and to really back Ukraine, because we know what the alternative is, and it's the Balkans, where they had a war and are now in this purgatory that has just not led to, to any good place. Yeah, I, I like that you mentioned that clip from the show. I've, I've seen that clip too. And I think it really does tell you something about what the Ukrainians are really thinking. I also saw another clip of Zelensky more recently listing every EU country one by one and talking about how much he loves them and how much he thinks they are or not with the Ukrainians. And you can hear so much more warmth in his voice when he talks about those Eastern countries. It helps people understand that us in the West are looking at this and thinking that it's about us. And the Russians are very happy with our misperception that this is all about us. And that's in taken with NATO, the idea that what Ukraine wants is the security umbrella, the great military powers, which are all in the West. But really what Ukraine are doing is looking at the trajectory of what we used to call the Eastern Bloc, the countries like Poland and Romania that were under the Soviet foot and emerge in the 1990s through economic integration to become modern developed countries, Poland and Romania. And that's what Ukraine wants. And that's what Ukraine sees itself as becoming part of. So if Ukraine were to join the EU, they would very, very possibly be one of these Polands and Hungarys the members of the Western countries do find difficult because of the vetoes. And because of Ukraine's particularly large size and underdeveloped economy, they would likely be at loggerheads with EU over all kinds of things. So that brings these EU reforms and treaty change really to the forefront of the conversation, just like you're saying, Max. I'm wondering, I mean, do you really think that in the near future, we could see the end of unanimity in the EU? Because it's so hard to imagine the EU without unanimity. But do you think that this is, I, I think about the WTO where there was lots of treaty changes and then we got to the 21st century and it just stopped. And I feel like that's where we are with the EU. I even though there were plenty of treaty changes in the 1990s and 80s, it's, I can't even imagine it happening now. So I can, because the EU sort of has done it on all sorts of uh, uh, topics and issues where they've moved to what they call qualitative majority voting. Essentially, it's like, it's not, it's not majority, but you have to get, don't know the exact numbers, but basically 
a big majority and then a strong number of countries also have to back you. So it can't just be a, a select number of states. And, and it works really well. And so now the issue is whether they can expand that to issues that come before the European Council. So before the EU does something new. So if it's going to make a decision to provide aid to Ukraine that is sort of outside of kind of the normal boundaries, then you need all 27 members. If it's going to do an oil embargo, it needs all 27 members. So it's on the, also on all the foreign policy decision-making. So if the EU is going to do sort of just a boring statement that condemns or says something bad about China and the South China Sea or about Venezuela, right now, the EU can barely, can't oftentimes do that because you have one member then says like, no. And on, on especially on more minor issues on the foreign policy domain, then it's sort of cost-free for one or two members to block something. So I think we could really see movement to QM, to qualitative majority voting. The Germans have an idea that you can actually do this without treaty change, treaty reform. And there's a lot of concern about treaty reform because what that essentially is, is constitutional reform. And when you do constitutional reform, what that means is that you have to then go before all 27 member state voters or however it's going to be approved parliaments, then everyone has to approve it. And that's a whole process. And then if one country says no, then you are stuck. So there's a big effort to avoid that. So there may be some technocratic adjustments that can be made. But I, I think we're in a place where, look, what has happened is that war in Europe has caused everyone to say, we need Europe to be stronger. We need it to be more united. We need it to do, no, do more. We need it to be more effective. Well, in order for that to happen, you then need to look at how, how Europe functions in, in certain reforms. And so I think there's movement for that and there's movement for enlargement. And the two are, are linked. German Chancellor Olaf Scholz says that Russia's invasion of Ukraine has ushered in a, quote, new era in world history. In Kyiv and Kharkiv and also in Mariupol, people are not only defending their homeland, they're fighting for freedom and their democracy, for values that we share with them. Scholz was speaking at a special sitting of the Bundestag. He went on to say that the country will invest more than 2% of its gross national product in annual military spending. There was a time when talk of German rearmament would have caused shockwaves across Europe. But now, at Lenin, an old East German training area, they're preparing new soldiers for the mountain troops, part of an army that's about to be revitalized. The government here is talking about a complete transformation of Germany's defence and foreign policy. Many in Europe would say the changes announced by Chancellor Schultz are long overdue. So I wanted to just transition a little bit in the EU to Germany, Max. So before the war, they received a ton of criticism and everybody was like, there are going to be a lot of countries that want to help the UK, France, US. Eastern Europe, but Germany's not going to want to help. However, we've seen a lot of statements, at least, that since February 24th forward, they've really changed their posture. So taking all BS aside, taking the statements at face value, from what Germany has actually done for Ukraine, how do we grade that? And how do we understand that as Americans from where they were, where they are now? And is it enough? So I, I think, you know, if you were to follow Twitter, you would be like, oh, my God, Germany is at like a D. <laughs> Just like, I'm like, do you know what Germany is? Like, I, do you know where, what Germany has been doing? And I think in some ways we expect, you know, a 180 to happen 
overnight. And I would say Germany's done about like a 165. Like they've, they, they're maybe not fully done a 180. And a lot of it, a lot of this is just also about you have a social democratic leader in Schultz that par- there's partisan politics in Europe and real, I think, distrust over a lot of the SPD's sort of leftist past and a lot of their connections to some of the, you know, obviously more pro-Russian uh, sentiment, Gerhard Schroeder. So you have this sort of ingrained skepticism. But I don't think, I, I actually have to say, if I think if Angela Merkel were chancellor, I do not think you're getting suddenly a ch- Germany three days after the war starts to announce 100 billion euros for, to invest in their defense forces, reaching 2%. I mean, Angela Merkel was chancellor for 15 years, and the German military is in a disastrous state, disastrous state. This is a conservative chancellor. There was no real significant push for investment. And she's, I think, uber conservative in the small C sense. And so what you have is Schultz, who ran as Merkel's successor, as being essentially a conservative as a social democratic politician with a very conservative style. That style in Merkel's past policies, both on the defense side, on the energy side, with Nord Stream, with you know, dependence on Russian gas, not matching the moment. Now, I have to say, you know, Schultz canceled Nord Stream 2, that you see the investment in the defense, you see Germany pushing and supporting an oil embargo. I mean, an oil embargo? If I had told people in Washington, if I had told the White House team thinking about sanctions in early February, I'd say, you know, this war is going to happen, and the Europeans are going to act so strongly, they're going to do an oil embargo against Russia. They would look to me like I was crazy. Because there was no possible way that that was that they thought that was going to happen, and I think when we talk about the military assistance to Ukraine, this I think what people need to realize this is a huge Rubicon that the that Germany is crossing from its post-war position. This is not something Germany did. In particular, it is not something that the SPD did, which was provide lethal military assistance. That's not in their bloodstream. And so to be doing it, of course, they, they don't also have the muscle memory of how to like do this. They don't know, you know, what we're providing military aid. Okay, what's the form? How do we do this? You know, I, this is one of the things I worked on in government. We have whole processes and procedures. And so I think a lot of this is being built on the fly in Germany. There's confusion on messaging. There's confusion on what they're providing. The politicians aren't caught up to speed. The bureaucracy isn't caught up to speed. And then everyone's yelling at them. And, and so there's missteps happening. And I think it's mainly a communications failure. I think, of course, they could be doing more. And frankly, the job of, of Twitter, the job of people advocating for for Ukraine, isn't to be like, well, they're doing a good job. It's to be like, do more. Every time Germany does something, it's no one says thank you. It says do more. And and they are the, the economic power within Europe that has tremendous economic capacity and can really push the EU. So on the one hand, People should keep up the pressure, but I think also we need to understand that they've done a ton. And while many Americans aren't on Twitter, a ton of us in DC are, and we're on it way more than we should be. So it, it yes. resonates. It resonates <laughs> yeah. in these circles. It res- you're, you're, I understand what you're saying. Uh, I see that criticism as well. I, I just had a follow-up here, though. So 165 degrees, that sounds like a lot. Angela Merkel, I think of technocrat, I think of brilliant, I think of uh, you know the scientist that's created this juggernaut or helped lead this juggernaut economy from the precipice of disaster into leading the EU. How should we look at her legacy, though, considering that the bureaucracy isn't built and everything else that you just laid out that Germany is now trying to do on the fly, including, you know, nuclear power plants and so much more? 
So I think we really need to reconsider her legacy, and I think historians will. I've sort of long been somewhat critical of Merkel, where she had so much power to, I think, move Europe and in, 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 in strengthen Europe. And frequently, there was a leadership vacuum that her caution and conservatism, I think, didn't serve Europe well during its decade of crises, from the euro crisis resulting with Greece, which was effectively German banks giving too much money to Greece, and then demanding to be paid back and then putting Greece into a depression. And then I think the migration crisis was a moment where she stood up and, and showed her humanity and dignity. But then there was kind of backtracking when we saw sort of the political ramifications. I think when it came to uh, Ukraine in 2014, she showed a lot of leadership there where she helped uni uh, unify Europe. There's a big question whether Europe would, would go with the U.S. on sanctions vis-a-vis -vis Russia. They did. However, you then didn't see Germany spend more money on defense. You didn't see Angela Merkel move away from Nord Stream. You saw the cancellation of Germany's nuclear industry uh, under Merkel, or nuclear power plants. So Germany phased out of nuclear, became more dependent on Russian gas, and now Germany has a real energy crisis in which they're having to burn more coal because the decisions that the Merkel government made. And so I think the main theory of the Merkel government which was changed through trade or main foreign policy rationale, which was that interacting, trading with foreign foreign countries, with autocratic countries would be beneficial to everybody and would actually help change them. I think it's been proven, it's not fully incorrect, but it, but a tad naive. And, and Merkel, one of her last things was to push a, a trade and investment agreement uh, with China, uh, the EU and China, which thankfully is frozen. But so I think there's been, has to be a lot of reconsideration of Merkel's legacy. And I think Schultz is in a bit of a bind and you see Rand as the successor to Merkel. And now people are seeing that Merkel's policies are not actually the ones built for the, for the, for the moment. Well, Max, I, you know, we're talking about whether if Merkel were in year number 18 of her tenure, whether it'd be worse than Olaf Schultz, I think it would perhaps be even worse than that, especially on these Russia issues. If her actual chosen successor, Armin Laschet, was in office, a guy who was in John Kerry's Twitter replies with a can of Weiss beer open and RT on television talking about how the USA was behind ISIS. I think that that is a perhaps even more concerning counterfactual, don't you think? Yeah. And I, I think the CDU, I mean, this is the CDU is now being very critical of the SPD for understandable reasons. They're now in the opposition and they're not you know, from familiar place. But, you know, Washington wasn't necessarily the strong foreign policy candidate. They didn't go with some of the with one of the other stronger foreign policy candidates and had said really kind of troubling things on on Russia, uh, I think I think on Syria if I remember correctly. And I think the the real stars that are coming out of this crisis is the, are the German Greens. Where Annalena Baerbock who uh, you know during the election everyone sort of questioned whether she was strong enough. You know, she stood there with Lavrov and was incredibly strong and has been incredibly clear and has had the moral clarity. And Robert Habeck who's the uh, economy and energy uh, minister is you know, if frankly, the exact right person that you would want in a job where it's one to keep, you know, the lights turned on, but also to make sure that we that Europe can move forward with an energy transition, because there's real trust there. You have a green in this position that is like trying to, you know, it's like I have to go to Qatar to cut an LNG deal. We're going to do that. But we're still committed to the green transition. And I think so I think the, the greens have really come out of this looking really pragmatic but really clear eyed and having real vision about the world. They, you know, were the ones most hawkish on Russia, most hawkish on China during the, the 2021 campaign. And I think 
that's bearing out. And I think if there's an election held today, they would do quite well. Fortunately for Schultz, that's not not the case. But but frankly, I should just say the coalition to me looks pretty strong. And I think people doubting it, I think are probably getting a little ahead of themselves. Yeah. And you know, the other thing about Merkel's legacy and how he viewed for the US, and this is also in contrast to the Greens, is that I think that a lot of American liberals who admired Merkel would be very surprised if they actually knew about her positions on social issues, and especially the positions of the CDU sister party in Bavaria, the CSU, on social issues. I mean, can you imagine uh, an American political party making a law that every public building had to display a crucifix? Uh, This would not be allowed under the First Amendment, but this is what Angela Merkel's sister party actually put into law in Bavaria. But Max, I want to ask you a big, big question. And this is kind of the biggest question of all, really. And that's about a European strategic autonomy and security autonomy. So there's a really strange thing where the, the big events that have happened in Europe since February 24th of this year could have two exactly opposite consequences in this regard. There's two completely different paths that we could go down and they both seem very plausible. So on one hand, the US are putting much more focus on Europe. They're sending more troops to Europe. They're sending more weapons to Europe. They're talking, thinking about European security much more. And this could really just reiterate and cement the U.S. role in European security and the European security umbrella that the U.S. provides. On the other hand, European countries and European leaders like Olaf Scholz are becoming much more conscious of the real security demands that the continent has. And it's given an awakening to this European security consciousness that is leading to increased defense spending, increased dialogue about security issues. So for a long time, the U.S. have wanted to rebalance toward the Indo-Pacific and have wanted Europe to take more responsibility for security. And these events that have happened in Ukraine could have either of those two completely opposite effects. On one hand, we could get more involved in Europe and shore up their security more than ever. On the other hand, Europe could start taking more responsibility as we've been asking this year for so long. So what do you think is more likely? Which of those two paths do you think we're going to go down? I think it's a, a bit 50-50. I'm going I'm to I, I, I'm a little undecided. I think a lot of me sees that the uh, status quo is really powerful and that what we'll see is sort of a, a more robust version of the status quo where Europe is a bit is stronger, can do a lot of things, but the U.S. still has to be there. When we think right now about European security, it actually doesn't make any sense, right? Like what, what are individual members of NATO, all these national countries in Europe are spending money for, not for national defense, but actually for European defense. That's really the point of why they are spending money, but they're not doing so at a European level. They're not pooling resources. They're not merging their efforts. It's done at a national level. And so what that means is that there's huge gaps in European security and always will be until the Europeans start pooling resources and start acting more as one when it comes to uh, security and defense. So some of that can be done through NATO, but NATO is a multilateral organization made up of member states. It doesn't pool and share the way that the European Union does. It doesn't integrate the way that the European Union does. And so what that means is that the status quo, the United States has, has sort of talked out of both sides of its mouth. We both want Europe to be really independent because, look, Europe, you're rich. You're 450 million people. Your economy is the same size as ours. Take care of yourself. On the other hand, 
We also don't want them to take care of it. We, we, we like European de- dependence. We like the fact that Europe relies on us. We get really concerned when they talk about strategic autonomy and being sort of independent of the United States and being able to do things without us. And we don't, and we've been opposed for the last 25 years to the EU doing any sort, anything in defense. And so what that means is that European forces may invest a lot in buying new tanks and, and, and new fighter jets. But if you need to get European troops over to Africa or to Portuguese troops to the front, you know, to, to Estonia, well, you're probably going to need U.S. airlift. You're probably going to need U.S. air tankers to provide refueling. When, you know, the AUKUS affair happened with France, the big thing that the French asked for afterwards was for us to keep providing certain military support to French forces in the Sahel, which was airlift, which was air tankers and intelligence. So we have these critical enabling capabilities that no real, no European country can really afford on their own to buy. So my concern is that what we'll see is basically the status quo continue. Now that said, I think there is another path, and I'll sort of outline it very quickly, is that the EU is our, has, there is a demand for Europe to be stronger. There is a demand for the Europeans to take take charge. And there is real support within the EU. This is what we don't realize. It, within the EU, within EU citizens, for the EU to do more. They recognize that the EU should be doing this. It's crazy that it's not doesn't have an ability to get its citizens out of Kabul because it doesn't have the capabilities. So I think what we'll start seeing is EU, and we're already seeing that in the last month, the commission has proposed a proposal to start coordinating and integrating the, all the additional spending that is happening to try to make sure it's spent wisely. So we'll start seeing the EU, I think, play. They already are playing a much bigger defense role. They've given Ukraine 1.5 billion euros for security assistance, which is a huge step for them. But we're going to start seeing the EU play a much bigger defense role. But if we really want the EU to be able to take care of itself or Europe to be take care of itself, which I think we should, because then it's a stronger ally for us. It can help us more in Asia and, and, and help us deal with Russia. Then I think we need to change our approach and say, the EU should get involved in defense for four more defense integration and really push the Europeans in, in, in various directions that reduce their dependency uh, on the United States. So just following up on that, Max, and I think of the Godfather part three when I ask this question, or in some <laughs> cases, I think of Hotel California. You can check out, but you can never leave. So with the EU, Middle East, we're always focused on those two areas. Since President Obama, we've been trying to pivot to Asia infamously now. Will we ever be able to, or are we just going to be stuck kind of in the middle ground, always promising to pivot, but not ever actually making it out? So I, I think we've pivoted. I think like, look, I, you know, I remember in 2014, uh, after Ukraine, a State Department mid-level officer, you know, there was a meeting about Ukraine assistance and what we could do, pounded on the table and said, the pivot is over, Europe is back. And I think he was, of course, wrong, because then the the pull of China has, has really pulled U.S. foreign policy. This administration came in intensely focused on Asia, intensely focused on China. Tony Blinken's first speech at NATO, I think he's mentioned China more than 10 times and Russia like four times. Now, what we're seeing here is a major crisis a war in Europe, Russia, a large country invading a small country. It's a huge earthquake event, and everyone recognizes that. But you can already start to see the gravitational pull of China you know, pulling back. And I think the baseline of where U.S. foreign policy will be, and the focus will always shift depending on the crisis, is going to be back to Asia. And this is something that I think the Europeans are starting to really recognize that actually no, China is a challenge. They are recognizing that. They are glad that we're focused on it. 
but they really think they need us in, you know, to deal with Russia, which they're not wrong. So I think there's a lot of leverage for the United States to really be pushing Europe in a more productive direction when it comes to defense, because Europeans now get it. They now get the importance of defense. You know, when Kyiv was looked like it was going to fall and that the Russian tanks were arriving, the sense of horror of what was about to happen really gripped and captivated European publics that now I think understand that no, Europe needs to be able to protect itself and defend itself. And the United States should seize that and say, okay, and, and it's happening. The spending is happening. So let's spend the money the right way. That will reduce some of the reliance on the U.S. military. We can put more of our assets in, in Asia. It's not necessarily a division of labor. We're going to have to be in Europe. We're going to have to be in Asia. We also want Europe to be in Asia as well. We want Europeans caring about China because their economy is the same as ours. So working together with the Europeans is actually critical to our Asia policy, to our China policy. I think this isn't a one or the other, but the pivot, I think, has happened. It will happen. We're hitting sort of a temporary pause because, I mean, oh my God, what is happening? But I think in the future years, China is going to suck up a ton of oxygen. That concludes today's conversation. Again, huge thanks to Max Bergman, to CSIS, and to you for being here. If you'd like to hear past episodes or sign up for our email list, which will deliver our best of directly to your inbox, please visit our website, pm101.live. Please also take a second to subscribe on whichever streaming service you're using right now so you don't miss our next episode coming this Friday. This has been Politics and Media 101. Wherever you are in the world, thank you for being a part of this community. I'm Jeff Browning. On behalf of Justin Higgins and John Gunnison, our co-founders, we hope to hear from you soon.